Good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you this morning as we continue in our church's study through the letter to the Philippians. As Larry just read, we are in Philippians 1, 12 through 18 this morning. You know, as you watch the news, assuming you watch the news, or as you hear the way most people talk in our culture today, it would seem that the one thing we all have in common as a society is that we're all miserable, or at least everyone seems to talk as if we are all miserable, frustrated by our circumstances, annoyed with the direction that our country is headed in. You hear this everywhere, do you not? You hear this in regards to people's work, you hear this in regards to how people's marriages are going, to how things are going at home. You certainly hear it with response to political concerns. And even within the church, you hear many Christians speak as if the church has gone off the rails and the church in America is terrible and we're going in a horrible direction and so on and so forth. Throughout all of this, it would seem that misery is the one great uniting factor for us all. That's a sad statement. Having said that, we understand why this is the case. We understand why people seem miserable. For the news reports miserable headlines 24 hours a day, and we live in a world that does seem hopeless, lost. We face daily challenges that, if we're honest, seem overwhelming, because most of those challenges are things that you and I can never fix. We can never address them. And so it might seem logical and even realistic to share in our society's misery and annoyance. And yet, as we look at the example of Paul in Philippians, we see that this cannot be the spirit of Christians. For while misery does exist, and while challenges are real and must be faced, there is a greater reality before us. A reality that points not to defeat, but to victory. A reality that doesn't point to hopelessness, but to joy. A reality that can be experienced by every single one of us who are in Christ, but only if we learn to see our circumstances through the same lens that Paul viewed his circumstances. That is to say, only if we see them through the lens of Christ. And so as we examine our text before us today, my prayer is that we might be reminded of what all of us, as brothers and sisters in Christ, really are united with, and what spirit should characterize that union. As we do so, we'll speak to real challenges that Paul faced, challenges that existed then, and continue to exist today, yet in the face of those challenges, we will see what unifies us as believers and what continually gives us hope. With that being said, let me again pray briefly for God's blessing to be upon our time in his word, and we will get started. Father in heaven, as always, we thank you for the time that we've been given to proclaim your word. What a blessing that is. God, as we do so, we acknowledge that we come to you, we come together in the midst of just ongoing challenges in our world. God, within this room, there are very real challenges being faced as marriages are struggling, as parents are struggling, as our nation faces very real difficulties. We know that does not just cease here locally, but throughout our nation and throughout the world as there are wars and rumors of wars and the threats that continually weigh upon our hearts. And so, God, as we come to Philippians today, we pray we might come not with a naive spirit that just assumes everything's going great, but with honesty, with vulnerability, willing to admit our struggle, willing to admit where we are finding it difficult to see your hand. 
But God, in that difficulty, might we see your face. Might we see, more specifically, the face and the work of Jesus Christ. And in so doing, might we be able to mimic this spirit of Paul, a spirit of victory, a spirit of joy, a spirit that is otherworldly, God. We love you, God. We praise you. Save those who are lost this morning, God, and build up those whom you have already saved. We pray this all to the glory and praise of your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we are able to come before you. Amen. Well, as we pick up our text, you perhaps might remember that Paul has already opened up his letter with this theme of thanksgiving. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Josh speak of how we as Christians really should be the most thankful people in the world, and for good reason, in light of what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. Yet, even as Paul speaks of the reality of that thanksgiving, and even as we speak of of the great things God has done, we cannot ignore the elephant in the room that existed at the time of Paul's writing. That elephant really being summarized by that word in verse 12, circumstances. For as Paul writes about being thankful, he acknowledges that those circumstances are very real, are in a very real way challenging. We see two particular challenges to these, in these circumstances. The first one, there in verse 12a, is broadly speaking the challenge of persecution or the challenge of suffering. Now, if you know nothing about what's going on in the book of Philippians, it would be easy to gloss over that word circumstances. And to think Paul is perhaps referencing some recent speaking engagement he had in which he was able to proclaim the gospel. What great news, Paul. But of course, if you know anything about the book of Philippians, heck, if you just read to verse 13 and read the word imprisonment, you understand that that word circumstances carries great weight with it. For when Paul speaks of his circumstance, he is speaking of his imprisonment in Rome. And that imprisonment would have brought with it a real challenge, real danger, both to Paul, but also to the church at large. You can understand that danger immediately in the life of Paul, for perhaps you already understand that being in prison in Rome is not the ideal place to live. You should also understand that being in prison in Rome brings with it um, really no certainty regarding his future release, regarding the timeline of that release, or regarding whether or not he will even survive. And so as Paul writes this letter, he writes it knowing his life really is still hanging in the balance. He writes this letter not knowing fully whether or not he will ever see these Philippians again. Paul certainly has confidence that will happen, and we'll read about that later. But his circumstances are, suffice it to say, deeply challenging. Paul understood that that challenge did not just end with his own personal life. He understood there would have been a greater concern raised by his imprisonment. For if Paul, one of the great leaders of the church, was in prison, well, what does that say about Christ? What does that say about Christianity? Certainly, a critic could look at Paul's imprisonment and say, this imprisonment must slow the growth of the church. For who would want to put their life in the hands of Christ when a follower like Paul has done it and has ended up in jail? Not only that, one must assume that this persecution would have meant the end of the evangelization of Rome itself. For what believer in Rome would feel confident enough to present Christ to others if the Apostle Paul himself had done that and now found himself in prison? 
Thus you can understand the concerns that would have been felt by Paul, by the Roman believers. And beyond that, you can understand why this concern, why this challenge would have been particularly weighty in the hearts of the Philippian believers as well. These Philippian believers would have had good reason to be concerned. Both because their dear brother and mentor Paul was in prison. That alone would be enough to cause concern. But in addition to that, the Philippians were themselves entering into a season of persecution. They were facing criticism from other people within the city of Philippi. And as those tides are turning against them, you can imagine how scary it must be for them to consider how that has looked in the life of the Apostle Paul. For if the Apostle Paul couldn't avoid persecution, if the Apostle Paul's reputation could be in question, if the Apostle Paul's imprisonment is a challenge, well, how much worse is it going to be for them? They're nobodies. They've accomplished little to nothing for the kingdom. So certainly, if suffering, if persecution harms the church in Rome, well, it's going to be the end of the church in Philippi. It's a real challenge they're facing. Real concerns. And they need to know how Paul is going to address that. How Paul could possibly be thankful in the midst of such challenging circumstances. That's a good question to ask. That question of how well can Christianity do if Christians are seen as weak. It's a good question to ask, not just by Paul, not just by the Philippians, but a question we should all ask ourselves, should we not? For we recognize that while Paul faced a unique form of persecution, and while the Philippians faced a greater likelihood of being imprisoned, we certainly still face persecution in our culture today. I think oftentimes we overlook this fact because persecution can look different. But we must remember that Jesus promised in passages like John 15 that the world will hate you. We must remember as Christians, the world hates us. We can overlook that at times because we're a little bit guarded by where perhaps we live and the type of people we interact with. That even if you do not feel the sting of persecution daily in your own life, we must remember and understand the fact the world still thinks we're stupid for believing in Jesus. Utterly moronic, naive, bigoted, old-fashioned, out of date. That is the way the world understands every single one of you who puts your faith in Christ. There's no getting around it. Because in their minds, you've placed your faith in a fairy tale. Worse than that, in their minds, you hold to standards that are hateful, for you believe in the existence of hell. You believe that people can't choose to live their lives the way they want to choose them. How dare you speak that way? How dare you hold to such outdated and bigoted beliefs? We must understand then that if we hold to the name of Christ, as we proclaim His message of the Gospel, we still today are opened up to persecution. And while it might feel foreign to us in our culture to see Christians getting pushed increasingly to the fringes of society, the fact of the matter was that that's exactly what Jesus said would happen. And regardless of how hard you work, how smart you are, how nice of a person you are, you are an alien in this culture. And you'll be treated as such. In the midst of that suffering, in the midst of being pushed to the fringes, all of us must ask ourselves, well, how can we be thankful in the midst of that? 
How can we maintain a a proud understanding of the Gospel? That is to say, proud in the work of Jesus Christ. How can we expect God to work in us when society doesn't want to see us or hear us? Certainly, like believers in the New Testament church, many of us are still prone to assume that persecution and the lack of an ability to speak to great crowds in our culture will inevitably mean the, slow of, the, slow, the, the slowing of growth in the church. It will mean the harm to the kingdom of Christ. Thus, for the Philippian believers, it would seem the circumstances of which Paul speaks so briefly would appear utterly hopeless and would appear to be inevitably a defeat to them as well. And yet, as we continue in the text, as we move past those circumstances and that imprisonment in the name of Christ that Paul speaks of, we quickly understand that Paul in no way writes out of a spirit of defeatism. He in no way writes in a manner that speaks of some cynical outlook of the past or the future. Rather, Paul is overwhelmed by the reality of victory. A victory, he says, that unites all of us as believers. We read of this victory in verses 12 through 14. Follow along with me again as we pick up those words. There Paul writes, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren... Trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Here as Paul attempts to encourage the believers in Philippi, he needs them to see the real victories that he has experienced. The real victories he has seen on display both with unbelievers outside of the church as well as with his brothers and sisters in Christ. We see first that victory amongst unbelievers described In verse 13, there in verse 13, he speaks of the fact that his imprisonment in Christ has caused for the spread of the gospel amongst the Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's significant about this? I mean, what about Paul's imprisonment allowed this particular audience to receive the gospel in a way they would not have received it outside of Paul's imprisonment. Because that is really what Paul is pointing to. To understand that and to appreciate how significant of an audience this is, we have to ask the question and answer, what is or who is that Praetorian guard? Now, some of you might be able to guess just by the language. The Praetorian guard speaks not to just some random group of Roman citizens. But it speaks to soldiers, Roman soldiers, and not just any Roman soldiers, but Roman soldiers who are living in Rome and given very significant duties as part of their service. This Praetorian Guard would have done a number of very important tasks for the emperor. In part, they served as guards over prisoners that were waiting to bring their case before the emperor. This is why By the way, they would have interacted with Paul for they would have been stationed by his side throughout the night to ensure that he could not escape. But even beyond those roles were other significant tasks that the Praetorian Guard alone accomplished. Included amongst those tasks 
was the task of protecting the life of the emperor. To put it in the historical context, what this likely would have meant, if you can picture this, is that some of these individuals in the Praetorian Guard, when they clocked into work on Tuesday, were told, okay, today your job is to watch over Paul. Paul's this prisoner, he's escaped before, so don't let him escape again, so stay by his side. Thus, all day Tuesday, overnight Tuesday, they would have been next to Paul, which would have meant they were hearing from Paul hearing about Christ from Paul, and hearing about Paul's imprisonment for Christ, hearing about the gospel, hearing about the kingdom. The next day, as they clock in on Wednesday, they could be told, the very same soldiers, okay, your task now is to be next to Nero, the emperor of the time. Nero, that great emperor who is famous today for his utter hatred of Christianity. Nero, the same emperor who lit Christians on fire to light his gardens. Nero, this outspoken, bombastic, arrogant emperor of the Roman Empire. These same soldiers then would have been swapping duties, watching over Paul and guarding Nero. Hearing the mindset of Nero and hearing the gospel of Paul. One can only imagine the incredible contrast they would have no doubt been seeing on a daily basis, back and forth. And it is no doubt in part to that contrast and in part to what they're hearing that it seems, based upon what Paul writes, that this cause of Christ, namely the Gospel, has begun being considered or spoken of by this Praetorian Guard. On their off time, around the water cooler, they are saying, hey, have you heard this Paul guy talk? Have you heard him speak about the kingdom of of Jesus Christ? Have you heard him speak of how he's imprisoned because of Christ? And have you heard him speak of the glory and beauty of Christ? This Praetorian Guard then, that were the emperor's right-hand men, were, by the emperor's laws, being forced to hear the gospel day in and day out. Outside of that imprisonment then, it is safe to assume that this Praetorian Guard would have had very likely chance to hear the gospel they would have been one of the least likely audiences to hear the gospel, for they serve the emperor, not these traitors like Paul. No, they are the emperor's men. And yet because of Paul, more importantly, because of Paul's imprisonment, they are now an audience to the gospel. And because of Paul's imprisonment, the gospel spreading amongst them, and as a result, spreading amongst other pagans as well throughout the city of Rome. That's an incredible story. And from our point of view, almost impossible to believe. Yet as incredible of a story as it is, and it truly is, we must understand how the story must have been interpreted or how the story must have been heard with the ears of the Philippian believers. For if you're a believer in Philippi, the story is more than just magnificent. The story is deja vu to them, isn't it? For in their own history, in that specific church in Philippi, well, it turns out that they've seen the exact same thing happen before. For if you look back at Acts chapter 16, you can read that glorious story of the founding of the church in Philippi. We discussed that early on in our study in this book of Philippians, the story in which Paul enters into this city knowing absolutely no one, And yet a city in which Paul immediately begins to minister. First to Lydia, who is the first convert in Europe. 
And beyond that, He rescues the servant girl, enslaved the servant girl possessed by demons. And having rescued her, Paul gets thrown into prison where Paul preaches to whom? A Philippian jailer, a Roman guard, a Roman soldier. And as a result of that gospel, God saves that Philippian jailer. Thus, for the church in Philippi, their church history was founded upon a story just like the one Paul is speaking of in Rome. And so as frustrating as the challenge might be, as intimidating as it might be to face persecution, and as disappointing as it must hear that Paul sits in prison in Rome, it must be also incredibly sweet to hear, well, God's doing the same work in Rome He did here. As unlikely as it might seem, God is using the chains of Paul as the primary tool to preach to that same unlikely audience in Rome as he did in Philippi. And so if that is true, then certainly we must be encouraged. Yet, even with that encouragement, there is that lingering concern of what does this mean for other believers? Paul, speaking to that concern, again reassures them, no, even with believers, things are going great. For look again at verse 14. And most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the Word of God without fear. Here's where we see that victory within the church as well. Here again, that assumption that persecution would mean the discouragement of the, fa- of, of the faithful, we find that no, that imprisonment actually is the encouragement of God's people. Because as a result of Paul's imprisonment, and with that, as a result of God's, of God's faithfulness to be with Paul in that imprisonment, apparently, these brothers and sisters in Christ are now all the more eager to share the gospel with others in Rome. For they, in essence, are seeing the worst case scenario in Paul, and they're saying, yeah, yeah, I can do that. I can preach Christ crucified. Because worst case scenario, I end up in jail, and I'm just like Paul. And I'm suffering for Jesus, just like Paul is suffering for Jesus. And so despite the fact that it would seem to fly in the face of common sense, it seems that Paul's imprisonment, that that increased persecution, is fueling the church in Rome. is bringing about greater growth, not just with the unbelievers, but with the believers as well. This reality, while again somewhat surprising at first glance, should again not be a surprise to the Philippian believers. For they are the recipients of gospel ministry that was fueled by persecution as well. Again, if you read through the book of Acts, it is this story over and over. Paul or the other apostles preach the gospel, preach Christ. As a result of preaching Christ, Jewish leaders, other leaders, persecute the church. They want to kill Christianity, get rid of them. And so as in response, Christians flee to other cities. And when they arrive in other cities, what do they immediately start talking about? Jesus. And so thus, as a result of persecution, believers fled Jerusalem, were sent throughout the Roman Empire, and everywhere they went, churches were planted. And so even in the face of persecution, there is a fueling, there is an encouragement, there is a genuine victory being enjoyed by Paul. A victory that he's able to celebrate regardless of his circumstances. A victory that he's able to lay claim hold of, even if it's not his own victory. That is to say, even if he's not the one preaching Christ. Even if he's not the one reaching out. He knows other brothers and sisters are. 
And in that, he's thrilled. Because he understands in all those circumstances, Christ is being proclaimed. It is such an incredible reminder of the way God has worked throughout the centuries. And it's an incredible reminder and encouragement to us as we are reminded of the fact that even when things look hopeless, even when it looks like the church is being defeated, in reality, even in that moment, we can know that God is at work. And just as He was at work in the most unlikely of places in the New Testament church, He continues to be at work in the most unlikely of places today. There are countless stories that point to that fact. You can go online and read about church growth in countries where persecution is at an all-time high. And in fact, I encourage you to do that. To see God is still working in the same way He worked back then. One of the greatest stories, to me at least, or one of the most encouraging examples of this activity of God, has been taking place in the country of Iran. Iran, not the first place you would imagine thriving Christianity in light of the severe persecution, in light of the almost universal background of Islam. And yet in Iran, people are reporting what appears to be the fastest growing evangelical movement in the world. Writing to that growth, Operation World says this, From only 500 Muslim background believers in 1979, many estimates, many estimates suggest the number is greater than 1 million in Iran alone. Large numbers of Persian people have encountered the risen Christ outside of Iran. The church of Persia has not grown this fast since the 7th century. This all despite the fact that in Iran, a person can still receive a death sentence for their apostasy from Islam. The growth, then, is a clear demonstration of the fact that the Holy Spirit is at work in countries like Iran and elsewhere. As believers, it's easy to be blind to the work that God is doing elsewhere. In the midst of our own dark seasons, it's easy to miss the fact that God is in fact still at work, that God is answering prayers, that God is, is enlarging His kingdom in order to see it. We must learn to make our world bigger. We must learn to think daily and pray diligently for our brothers and sisters in Christ, not just here in Cape Girardeau, but in other countries as well. We must take advantage of resources we have to hear of how God is working elsewhere. We must take advantage of things like the mission conference. Right? This isn't just an empty plug for you to come to the mission conference. It is a genuine encouragement so that you can come and be reminded of the fact that God is at work elsewhere. That we are supporting God's work elsewhere and that you, even as you remain in Cape Girardeau or Jackson, or if there are other cities that exist beyond that, I'm not sure, even if you stay here, you have a vital part to play. And as our brothers and sisters in Christ celebrate victories of Christ in Iran or India or anyone else, anywhere else, we celebrate them here at home. For we know that their victory is our victory. For their victory is in the name of Christ. And it's under the name of Christ that we are ambassadors even here. And so, brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask you, are, are you aware of these events? Are we taking the time to praise God for these victories? Or are we prone to become so obsessed with our own struggles, our own failures, that we fail to see the greater picture? As Paul is speaking to the Philippian believers here, in order to rejoice in all circumstances, something we'll see here in a moment, 
we must learn to see those victories. We must tell each other about those victories. For in so doing, we see even in the face of defeat, God is at victory and the church is winning. Having said that, however, in the Philippian worldview, in the Philippian mindset, the challenge doesn't stop with persecution from the outside. For there still is that other elephant in the room, if you will. That additional challenge of of not just the world hating Paul, but the reality of division. That is our next point, where we see this challenge of division within the church. Paul speaks to that challenge in verses 15 through 17. There again we read, Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. As Paul speaks of this victory of gospel proclamation, he does not speak of it in some naive manner. That is to say, he understands obviously that not everyone preaching Christ is doing so with pure motives. There is a picture of division, a picture of mixed motivations at work, even amongst believers. By the grace of God, he says, many of these, or some of these, are indeed preaching out of love. A love, of course, for Paul, as they want to stand by Paul's side. They want to say, I'm not ashamed of you, Paul. I am like you, Paul. But more importantly, they do so out of a love for Christ. They are selfless. They are humble. They, they exemplify the same spirit that Paul himself exemplifies. Yet still, Paul says, there are others. Others who have impure motives. Others who are driven, not by a love for Paul, but some made-up rivalry with Paul. As if they're enemies, as if they're, they're, they're weighing out their, their, who's stronger, as if they're trying to prove who's a better servant by winning more people to Christ. They're driven by that made-up accusation against Paul and driven at a spiritual level by what Paul references as envy, strife, selfish ambition. This is a serious matter. And one could only assume that this must have been deeply frustrating to Paul. I mean, Paul who preached Christ out of a pure heart, Paul who is humble, Paul who loves Christ more than anything else, and yet here he is sitting in prison. And these guys are out there getting more popular as a result. You can imagine how easy it would have been to to dwell on that frustration. And yet for Paul, this is nothing new. For Paul, there is no surprise of these mixed motives because in Paul's ministry, he's seen this tribalism on display before. You can catch glimpses of it throughout his letters. But one example of it that I think kind of exemplifies the same mentality is found back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it, you see kind of the same argument as it can come up within the church, even amongst genuine believers. There in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul is addressing these tribalistic tendencies when he says this in 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 1. There he says, I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual men, but as to men of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. 
For you are not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife amongst you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I'm of Paul, and the others of, I'm of Apollos, are you not mere men? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. As you move on, you see that tendency continue to be lived out amongst the Corinthians. You see how even in that New Testament church, Christians were picking and choosing their favorite ministers, their favorite speakers, and they were dividing against one another based off of which minister of the gospel they loved the most. Now thankfully, we live in a day and age where this never happens. (laughs) Of course it does. This happens all the time. We don't have apostles to point to, but we sure have our favorite authors, and we have our favorite preachers, and we have our favorite speakers, and so oftentimes when you hear Christians talk with one another, it's clear they're trying to sort each other out. And it's clear they're judging a brother and sister based off of the authors they cite, based off of the pastors they quote. And so while we do not say, I'm of a Paul and I'm of Apollos, well, we say, I'm of John Piper. I'm of Mark Dever. I'm of John MacArthur. We could go on and on. And we speak these names as if we're proving that we are more spiritual than other people. And there is great danger in that division. For suddenly we are speaking of other believers and other preachers as if they're false. They're lesser than I. And if you do not agree with everything such and such an author says, well, I cannot have fellowship with you. And so we see the division continue. And we understand how dangerous that division can be. Paul faced that danger. The Philippians themselves faced similar division. One of the primary reasons it seems Paul wrote this letter to the church in Philippi was to address division in the church. It has gotten so bad that as we come to the end of the book of Philippians, we'll see Paul calls out ladies by name in the Philippian church and speaks of the fact this division must be made right. We cannot allow factions within to disrupt the ongoing mission of believers. But still, you might ask, well then how do we respond to this? How can we possibly continue to rejoice when we as brothers and sisters in Christ are struggling to get along? How can we move past this challenge of division in the same way we move past the challenge of persecution? Well, Paul gives us the example of what it looks like. For Paul, in the midst of that challenge, again reminds us ultimately what unites us and how we ought to respond. We see Paul's response there in verse 18, where he says this, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Honestly, it's easy to assume that Paul is is kind of going over the top here. I mean, how can Paul honestly think this? He has just said that Christians are preaching Christ out of envy and strife. So how on earth can Paul, while he sits in prison, rejoice in their success? Well, The argument that Paul makes here is quite straightforward and quite simple if we just read it. 
For Paul, as he describes what has happened, is making this simple observation. That observation being that the gospel is being preached. Meaning, these are not false teachers. They are not diverting you from the teachings of Christ. They are still proclaiming Christ. They are still proclaiming the gospel. And so while he understands the reality of their motivations, he also understands their message. He understands the gospel is being presented through them. When Paul makes that observation, Paul is then able to examine his own heart. And Paul reminds us in the Philippian believers what Paul's greatest desire is, which is gospel proclamation. That Christ is being proclaimed. And since Christ is being proclaimed, and since that is Paul's greatest desire, well then he rejoices. But how does Paul do this? How is he able to have such such, this, such an exemplary attitude. Well, that attitude stems again from that constant desire of Paul's heart. From the reality that Paul had come to truly understand that there was nothing more beautiful, nothing more precious, nothing more powerful, nothing more inspirational, nothing more valuable than the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see this mindset, this heart, this passion pour out of Paul throughout his letters. We'll see it later on in Philippians. Or in Philippians chapter 2 as he encourages believers to be united together and to be humble like Christ. He then waxes eloquently on the beauties of Christ. The mindset of Christ, the humility of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 and following. But we see that that same love, that same passion in just about every other letter he writes as well. If we read through the New Testament epistles and time and time again, you see Paul seemingly can't help himself. But as he pins the name of Christ, he is compelled to then go off on this tangent, down this rabbit trail to remind believers how beautiful and how precious Christ is. Time does not suffice to have us read through the countless examples of this, but even if you just turn over a few pages to the letter written to the Colossians, you see this desire on display. Speaking to Christ and the incomparable nature of Christ, Paul says this in Colossians 1 verse 13, For He, that is Christ, rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. In a similar fashion, you consider the words of Paul in in passages like Romans 8. Romans 8, speaking of the reality of suffering in the world. Paul says this in verse 18 of of, of chapter 8. I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed. For the anxious longing of creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it and hoped that creation itself will be set free from its slavery to corruption of the freedom of the the glory of the children of God. Time and time again we see in Paul's letters That when he speaks of the gospel, he's speaking of that which inspires his greatest love. Which inflames his deepest passions. 
And it is because of that deep-seated desire, it is because of that genuine passion that Paul is able to look past the genuine frustrations of this world, the divisions, the immaturity of fellow believers, and he's able to respond with rejoicing. Because he knows that his rejoicing does not rest on his present circumstances. His rejoicing does not rest upon his reputation and what people are speaking of Paul. They rest on the reputation of his King and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so as long as people are speaking well of Christ, who cares what they're saying about Paul? When they speak well of Christ, they're speaking of that which most greatly encourages Paul and which should most greatly encourage every single one of us who are in Christ. And so Paul, speaking to these believers, is able to genuinely face the challenge of persecution. And yet in the persecution, he's able to say, Philippian believers, remember, see that God is still at work. There's still victory in this. I'm not defeated. I'm not saddened by this. Christ is at work. We are winning the battle. And even in the face of that challenge of internal division, Paul yet again does not spend a great deal of time speaking of these people who speak against him. Paul doesn't name names here as much as maybe we wished he would have. Paul wastes no ink bemoaning his circumstances because Paul knows that's not what the Philippian believers need to hear. They need to hear of Christ's name being proclaimed. They need to hear that in all these things we can still rejoice and because of that we must rejoice. Paul here is not preaching some Pollyanna attitude that ignores the realities of suffering in our world. And this is so important for us to hear because I think oftentimes when we talk about how we need to be thankful, when we talk about how great things are going, we do so with this ignorance. We are doing our best to to make believe that the world is great, that suffering doesn't exist. That's unhelpful. It is dishonest. For the world is dark. There is suffering. Goodness gracious, you turn on the news today, people are still dying and being bombed in Ukraine, including brothers and sisters in Christ. And so our calling is not to ignore the reality of suffering. But our calling is also not to bemoan our circumstances and speak as if all hope is lost. Because it is not. For even if we cannot see it, God is at work. And so as we consider these words of Paul, unbelievers, as I've said so frequently, I say again, the world is a horrible place for you. Life is not going to turn out great for you. That is to say, eternal life will not work out great for you. For regardless of how rosy your present circumstances might be, and regardless of how dark your present circumstances might be, they're just going to get darker in eternity. Because apart from Christ, you are going to hell. And so, unbeliever, please understand, the call of the gospel is not just some profess Jesus Christ and everything gets better. The call of the gospel is to die to yourself. To understand your only hope for life is Jesus Christ. It is in His kingdom. And so, unbeliever, I beg you today, repent of your sins, place your trust in Jesus Christ. 
For while the world might hate you for it, God will love you eternally. And I pray you do that today. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, let us be careful that we are not entering into that practice of communal despair with our fellow brothers and sisters on a daily basis. It is so easy to get sucked into that despair daily, to speak only of our frustrations, to speak only of how we wished things were getting better, how we wish there was hope. While it's tempting to do that, let us learn from the example of Paul. Let us be quick to speak of the victories we see to our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. If we see God at work in their lives, tell them. Tell them how encouraging they are to you. In the midst of our own struggles, in the midst of our own darkness, let us strive to find examples of God's glory and God's work and God's goodness in the world around us. Let us ask for help from our brothers and sisters. And let us celebrate those victories where we see them. In a similar manner, as easy it is to get sucked into these divisive discussions and arguments within the church, let us not stake all of our hope on our own reputation or on the reputation of our favorite pastor or preacher or author. But let us stake every ounce of our hope on the reputation and glory of Jesus Christ. For it is Christ who saves, it is Christ who we proclaim, and it is Christ whose coming we eagerly await. When that is our hope, then even in the darkest of circumstances, we like Paul can rejoice. And so let us rejoice today. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. God, the example of Paul is so convicting, so deeply challenging. For we all know that we face our own challenges. Yet if we are honest, our challenges are so light compared to the Apostle Paul. You have blessed us so richly, God. Yet we confess it is easy to sit in the midst of our blessings and complain. It's easy to look back at history where your glory has been so clear where you have so richly blessed your church, and yet to allow our sight to be focused upon only that which annoys us, that which disappoints us. God, break us of that habit. As you do so, God, I pray that we are not ignorant of real challenges that we face. Might we never come across as uncaring and unkind to those who are genuinely suffering. And God, I pray for those who are suffering this morning, God. In the midst of their darkness, might you cause them to see your light. In the midst of that darkness, might you use us, God, to speak to them, to point them to your light, to point them to your glory. And as we do all these things, God, might might we strive to be different from our society, a society in which people continually bemoan their circumstances. Let us be known for our love for one another, for our confidence in your work, and for our ability to rejoice in all circumstances, God. Let us be known, not by our own name, but by the name of your Son, Jesus. For he alone saves, he alone is worthy of praise, and it is his return that we eagerly anticipate. Jesus, come back today, we ask you. But guide us as we continue to go through this world as we wait. It is in your name we pray, amen.